Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you know that God loves you when he gives you ice cream, so make sure we get some. <laughs> I'm Rob Spikestra. I'm the pastor of discipleship and have an opportunity, get an opportunity here to, to preach out of Psalm 127, which we just had read for us. So before we get into it, let's ask God continue blessing. Father, um, thank you. Thank you that you do not leave us alone, that you have not left us alone uh, for us to figure out your ways figure out what, what your word is, but Father, rather, we thank you that you have given us your word and your ways. We thank you, Father, knowing that what you do and the way you do things are completely different than the way we would think things ought to be done. And so, God, as we come to this, this, this uh, passage, we come to this psalm, we would ask that you would, uh, as we've even prayed earlier, that you would be uh, kind of blowing through our minds and our hearts, that you would help us to change our minds where they need to be changed and that you would change our hearts, that we would uh, stop loving lesser things and that we love uh, the greatest, the greatest one, the greatest good uh, in the universe, and that is you. So uh, please do that work, we ask. Thank you that you want that for us. Thank you that you are pursuing us. Um, Thank you that you just won't let uh, let us uh, settle for less. You're a good God, and we thank you for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, I want to begin actually this morning in uh, Luke chapter 9, and so turning your Bibles first to Luke chapter 9, and I didn't put it on the screen, so if you want to read along, you're going to need to open up your Bible, Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin at verse 57, and it's here where we have a story about three men who approach Jesus eager to follow him, but in surprising fashion... Jesus seems to be trying to talk them out of doing so. The first guy said, verse 57, Luke 9, he said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus told this man that he could expect homelessness on the journey ahead. So that the basic need of shelter was not guaranteed in following him. Well, the next man told Jesus that his father had just died and the man wanted to go back and bury his father and then follow Jesus, which seems to me like a fairly reasonable request to want to honor your father at his funeral. But Jesus said, look there in verse 60, He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that seems like Jesus is a bit insensitive to the grief of the man in expressing this priority of the kingdom of God. Well, the third guy wanted to say goodbye to his family. Jesus wouldn't let him. Verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Plainly put, a relationship with Jesus requires total superior and exclusive devotion. Now, what we want to do is we want to call these parables, but we can't do that because it's Luke, the physician, who is very careful to write out exactly the words and the actions that he has here. And so he makes it clear that this is actually what happened following Jesus' words, including Jesus' words, and that from the make of it, it is unclear whether or not these individuals followed. Well, the events of Luke 9 were not isolated events in the life of Jesus. On another occasion, when surrounded by a crowd of eager followers, Jesus turned to them and remarked, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yeah, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Then he continued on, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now what Jesus is referencing there is he's referencing the instrument of torture and death as if this is something we ought to embrace daily if we are to follow him. And indeed, that's what he's saying. In John's account of Jesus' life, we find him feeding 5,000 individuals from a boy's lunch sack. And that was a merciful act of the Lord to meet the needs and care for the needs of those in that remote location. But it was also being a gracious act at that moment because he had a lesson to teach them. And the lesson was this, that Jesus was more than a man, that he was actually divine and could be spiritually could be their satisfaction. A lesson lost on them. So compelled by Jesus' ability to provide lunch, when Jesus left in the night, unbeknownst to them, the next day they searched for him until they found him, knowing what they really wanted, a cheap, secure source of bread, he said, I am the bread of life. Your father ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him, give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, it's at this point that Jesus could have made a clarifying statement. Ease their mind. Explain that this is a metaphor. A metaphor nature of his words. But he doesn't. He goes on and says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Jesus records the results, or sorry, John records the results. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He has a huge following, but rather than saying easy things and doing what they want, he has done what the Father wants. And we know this from John 17 in his prayer. Jesus prays, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Rather than saying easy things and doing what people want, he purposefully made it difficult to follow him by saying difficult things and making hard demands. Now, we, we typically define success by size. So if we think of ministries, we are impressed by bigger crowds, uh, bigger budgets, and bigger buildings. If we think of our own personal success, we are tempted to think of success in terms of size and look of our homes and perhaps the neighborhoods that we live in. We think of success in terms of financial security. How, how much income are we earning or how much retirement have we built up? We think of success in terms of how important we are at work, how dependent our company is upon our presence. And we think of success in terms of our children, whether or not they're going to make a good living or, or not, or whether or not they're going to college, and if so, then what college are they going to go to? Now, at this point, you may be already asking, what in the world are we doing here and not in Psalm 127? Well, here's the connection. We tend to think of success in terms of independence. It is what we've been told within the phrase, the American dream, this, this idea that we breathe in, that we swim in every day. Here's the definition of the American dream. The American dream is for each man and woman to be able to attain to the fullest stature on which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they have accomplished. The American dream teaches us that our greatest asset is our own ability. And so now we have raised at least one generation, if not two, telling them that they can do whatever they dream. Independence. We tend to think of success in terms of independence. Where our psalm today is a correction to this false message of success. Dependence, is, de dependence upon God determines success. Dependence upon God determines success. So here we go. Nothing we do can be successful apart from God's active involvement. Look at verses 1 and 2. Nothing we can do can be successful apart from God's active involvement. Verses 1 and 2. This, the Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
Now, the emphasis in the Hebrew is on uselessness. The Hebrew word we translate in vain is found at the beginning of each of the phrases that comes after those conditional uh, clauses so that we could read it this way. Unless the Lord builds the house in vain, those who build it labor. Unless the Lord watches over the city, in vain the watchman stays awake. Vain it is that you rise up early and go late to rest. It is useless to build, to guard, to work hard if we believe that success is solely upon our effort. No, rather, success is determined by God's active involvement, and that involvement begins with our relationship with him. See, if you notice there, Solomon uses the covenant name. So we could say it this way, unless Yahweh builds, unless Yahweh watches. The one who is in covenant, covenant name, the one who's in covenant with his people, the one whose essence of his goodness is grace and mercy, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, must be the one who is our ultimate source of life and thus activity of building and watching. See, Jesus said in John 15, 5 this way, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then a few verses later, he says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's impossible for us to bear fruit, he says, apart from con being connected to the vine, the vine of Jesus Christ. It is impossible for us to build, it is impossible for us to watch, it is impossible, as we're going to see, to labor and have any good that comes out of it apart from being connected to him as our covenant Lord. And then beginning to order all of our lives around the truth that he has given to us. To begin to change our minds the way we think things ought to be. And to begin to think the way he says things are, are going to be. Now keep in mind that here that Jesus isn't saying that things can't be accomplished apart from him. The look of success can be accomplished apart from him. Ministries can grow in numbers. Budgets can be enlarged. Buildings can be, be, be built. Social media followers can expand. The look of success can be easily accomplished apart from him and thus can be influential. Tempting to want to define one's own success by those measures, but in the end, the house and the security is going to be in vain. See, Paul gives perspective as he describes standing before Jesus Christ in judgment. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 13, he says, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Nothing we do can be successful apart from God's active involvement. Nothing. See, notice how the problem is not in the building. God is not against us building things. Nor is it against wanting security. We rightly place a high value 
on being secure physically and financially, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. This was true of God's people in the Old Testament. See, if you go back there, what does it say there? It says, unless the, uh, the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And the watchman was absolutely necessary for the protection of the ancient city. Today we use sophisticated watchmen, we use security software, cameras, satellites, drones, spy, spy planes. See, contextually, Solomon is thinking of a city, and he, the city he's thinking of is, he's thinking of Jerusalem. See, we see that in the inspired uh, inscription of the psalm, that the psalm is found within the song of ascents. That begins at Psalm 120 and ends in Psalm 134. So that we have to go back and get context here to Psalm 122 as an example. We'll go back to Psalm 122. Again, a song of ascent of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, why did they love uh, Jerusalem? Well, they loved Jerusalem because that's where the temple sat. This is the place where sinful man could meet with God through uh, sacrifices. And Solomon, he was familiar with the anxiousness of the nervous population, so he gives us Psalm 124. We read Psalm 124, which encourages God's people with the assertion that the Lord himself guards the city. Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let, let, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, <laughs> when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. <laughs> Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. But if our efforts of security does not ultimately rest in God, it will be like grabbing smoke, useless. See, look at verse 2. Again, God is not against diligent work. This particular psalm is considered a wisdom psalm, and we know of wisdom literature like the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, the wisdom writer extols the ant as an exemplary model of wisdom. The ant works hard during the summer and at harvest in order to secure its future. And so then the sage continues in that chapter by chastising the sluggard. And so we have Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and once like an armed man. So we know he's not against diligent hard work. And yet, it is possible, Dave Ramsey fans, 
to live like no one else today so that you can live like no one else tomorrow and be and not be successful. If you're not measuring everything you do around this covenantal relationship you have with God. So verse 2, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. If you're not trusting in God's covenantal promise to provide and protect, but rather trusting in putting in long hours, what will you get but anxious toil? If you believe that success is contingent on our effort, if that's what we believe, then we are compelled to work harder. Think about it historically. Prior to the invention of electricity, most of our ancestors lived according to the rhythm of the day. So as long as there was sunlight, they would work. And as the day ebbed into evening and transitioned into night, their work slowed and finally came to a halt. Some may have worked by candlelight or lantern, but because these were precious commodities, they too were held in reserve. Such a life stands in stark contrast to ours. <laughs> because computers travel with us and artificial light is always available, we can work late into the evening and through the night. Literally, we can stave back the darkness. Cell phones allow us to remain on call and accessible 24-7. And worse yet, this capacity to work continuously has become a source of pride in us. The American dream drives us to work hard, but work even harder than that. In his book, the, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society, Eugene Peterson admonishes. He, he says this. He says, relentless compulsive work habits. You can read in there the bread of anxious toil. Relentless compulsive work habits which our society rewards and admires are seen as a sign of weak faith and assertive pride, as if God could not be trusted to accomplish his will, as if we could rearrange the universe by our own efforts. Pride. If success is contingent solely on our effort, then anxious toil. But if we're depending upon God... Sleep. Sleep. Really good sleep. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't you like that? <laughs> yeah. Sleep. Sleep that is found in being his beloved. Loved of God. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Come back to this at the end, how to be his beloved. Verses 1 and 2. Nothing can we do will be successful apart from God's active involvement. Which now brings us to the second part of the psalm, verses 3 through 5. Because of God's active involvement in life, we can be successful. 
Because of God's active involvement in life, we can be successful. Look where that success can be found. Look at verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Okay, again, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Because of God's active involvement in life, namely, giving us children, we can be successful. From creation, we know that the blessing of God is for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Remember that? (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. For the purpose of spreading the glory of God through the creation of a God-honoring culture. And so that call to to expand a God-honoring culture, we would call that a mandate. The mandate to create a God-honoring culture is still today in effect. And that happens through the raising of our children in the Lord. Remarkably, that blessing of fruitfulness was the solution to the fall. After man had sinned, the first words God had for his enemy, Satan, was this. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God's solution to the problem was children, or a child. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God speaking to Satan, and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. In other words, Eve's offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning that there would come an offspring of humanity who would deal a death blow to the enemy of humanity. This is the beginning of the covenant of grace. Thus, every woman thereafter had the possibility of birthing the Savior of the world. And as we know God's story, uh, time went on and God narrowed the focus through whom the Savior would come, first from the line of Abraham and then through the line of David. So we come to David, King David. And he has a desire. His desire is that he wants to build God a temple, a permanent house. A good desire. But God's gracious response to David's desire was, oh, no, 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 no. You want to build me a house? Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. (laughs) That's how God works. God, what can I do for you? Nothing. Let me do it for you. (laughs) His desire, he said, I'm going to build you, David, a house as in a heritage. And so we look look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. Now, yeah, we know Solomon was the one who then came and built a temple, but more than Solomon for, look at the last phrase, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that throne is Christ's throne. It's through David, through the line of David, Jesus Christ came, and it is through that throne that is forever that was given to Jesus as a result of his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. 
And then Jesus said, now I'm going to build a house. Jesus is building a house, a temple made of living stones. So we have 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. You come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And the primary means of building this house is through shaping of our children. Children are a heritage. See, uh, the word... You see there in verse 3, heritage is often translated in our, Old, in our Old Testament inheritance and often referred to land. And the idea is, is that it is something that is lasting. Well, our children carry on who we are into the future. Primarily, what we value, what we think is crucial for life or crucial for flourishing is what is carried on through our children. But notice who the children are from. From the Lord, Yahweh. In other words, children are a gracious gift from the Lord. Now, keep this in mind. Having children or not having children is not a determiner of whether or not God loves you. See, he says he uses the covenant name to be very clear here that in covenant with you, when we're in covenant with him, when he pursues us and he, and he opens our hearts into this relationship with him and we enjoy the promises that he says he will give to us, it is out of his love for us. It is secure. Our, the covenant name is absolutely secure that we know he loves us. And it's out of that love, the foundation of his love, then that he does gracious things. And one of the gracious things is he gives children. Children are not a right. <laughs> children are not something that we should demand or expect from. Children are a gift. They are a gracious gift to us. So if you don't have children, it has nothing to do with his love. No, it is out of the covenantal love that God gives uh, grace, the grace of children. And children are a gracious gift from the Lord. And because they come from the Lord, we are to raise them in such a way that reflects what the Lord values, or what we could say, what Yahweh values. What God says is crucial for life and flourishing. And children are a gracious gift from the Lord, and this gift has value, because you can look at that second phrase there. It says, the fruit of the womb is a reward. And reward implies benefits. It is intended for one's good. So children are a reward in a number of ways. They benefit us in a number of ways. First, children are great revealers and thus sanctifiers of parents. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> they reveal to us what we really value. And that many times is not valuable and does not lead to a flourishing life. They, they will see right through us. <laughs> oh, there's nothing more sobering than see a child simply interact with a sibling or another child and realize you're seeing your own self right there. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's like a mirror. A mirror to our own sinfulness, but if we respond with confession and repentance, then they truly are a reward. How else are they a reward? Well, look at verse 4. Uh, verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. 
They can further the work that has been done, that we've done to fulfill the cultural mandate. We can begin to watch them in new and fresh ways pierce the darkness with the light of the gospel. See, arrows are offensive weapons, but arrows are not found in the wild. You've got to take raw resources, and they have to be crafted. Uh, You've you got to take a shaft, and you have to make it straight, and it's got to be true. Feathers have to be meticulously formed and then attached with accuracy. A blunt object for the arrowhead has to be shaped and then sharpened and attached to the barrel of the shaft. Time and effort and careful crafting are required. Nothing can be taken by chance or hoped for. And this is how we must approach our children. Nothing can be taken by chance or hoped for. This is why we have catechism. We have catechism for grades third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade. And we're not doing this as just a way to get them out of here during our, our sermon time so they won't be a distraction. You know, oh, that's really nice. You know, get them out of here. That's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because what they need now in third, fourth, and fifth grade, and these incredibly absorbing brains that they have, and that is that they're able to memorize truth. They're able to memorize theological truth, and they're able to actually memorize theological verses, and, and it just sticks, it sticks there. What we're doing is we're putting placeholders in the mind. So if your children are in catechism, take it seriously. Don't take it as just something for them just to do right now. Take it seriously. It really demand for them to, to memorize. Now, it doesn't seem like it's applicable at the moment. These are big truths that they're gaining. They're memorizing. And some of them, you know, they're, they're working with them downstairs. They're working with them to help them to understand those theological truths. But in the end, they may not get all of them. But that's okay. Because they will one day. Because we're placing markers, we're placing placeholders in their heads, in their hearts, so that one day they will need that placeholder. When they're in the battle, they'll be able to take out that place marker and say, oh, no, this is what's true. Okay? This is why we have children's ministry. This is why we have SU youth over there. I mean, sorry, uh, um, uh, kids, children, kids. And that's why we also have youth. These are places in which we are trying to assist what you are doing as parents in order for you to be crafting these arrows. This is why we tell you to be very careful about the next 12,000 hours that your children are going to experience between K K through 12. That's, That's, by average, children will be in a school from kindergarten to 12th grade, 12,000 hours. That's a lot of hours being crafted by someone else who may not have the same idea of what it means to be val- what's valuable and what will mean for flourishing life. And these are these are you know these these teachers are uh, are are sincere. They are, they're doing their best. They want to do what is best for the child of which they believe is valuable and will bring flourishing life. But it may not be true. So just be. This is why I was saying: be careful. They are a reward for us, and the reward is is that they are arrows to penetrate the darkness of light, the darkness with the light of the greatest good, God. 
And, and notice, notice, too, when this work must take place, verse 4, um, they're the children of one's youth. The shaping begins with young parents. It, 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 it's, it begins when they are young and continues until they leave your home. It's meticulous work which each parent is involved in with the hope that when they leave your home there are offensive weapons able to penetrate the darkness when the light, with the light of the God of the universe. And believe you me, chill, uh, parents of adult children have limited influence on their children. I have three boys who are out in the world working full-time, have families, two of them have wives, one single. Um, I don't have a lot of influence anymore. The trueness of these arrows, therefore, cannot be taken for granted. For when they are true, then they are a heritage that reflects the Lord. They are a reward to one's efforts. Thirdly, how are they a reward? Verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. They become our protectors. The gate was the place for public assembly. It was the location for business and commercial activity. It was also the spot to decide upon legal disputes. This is a prime location for justice or injustice, for kindness or abuse, for goodness or corruption. When an enemy was resolved to act in an unjust, abusive, or corrupt way, a godly man who has a quiver of adult children to defend him, he's blessed. His children are helping him succeed in times of adversity. There is a sense of protection from loneliness and abandonment in life, particularly in the vulnerability of old age. Because of God's active involvement in life, we can be successful. There is a heritage, and he will build his church through us and our children so that the gates of hell will not be able to hold back the relentless assault of the kingdom of God. Well, let me conclude with this. I want to note for you the placement of this psalm. Psalm 127, its placement in the ascent psalms is, the, is really the pinnacle. And it's the pinnacle of our understanding of our dependence upon God. There's a symmetry that the that the editor had in terms of placing these psalms as he did. So there's seven psalms, and then Psalm 127, and there's another seven psalms thereafter. So there's this, this symmetry. So you can think of it as a pyramid. And this psalm was to be thought of as the peak, the peak of understanding of dependence upon God. And these seven or these 15 psalms would be psalms that they would sing as they were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, ultimately to the temple of which they were to do three times a year to celebrate the fulfillment of God's promises that he made in his covenant for his beloved. Uh, these promises of which they were absolutely dependent upon. And the temple was the focal point of these three annual feasts. And it was so it was there in his house, which he built, where he watched over and where he worked on behalf of his beloved. So the feasts were a reminder that they were absolutely dependent upon God 
for life, and it had something to do with a sacrifice. At the end of Jesus' public ministry before the cross, he had 11 followers, hardly a movement. And certainly not impressive showing from the perspective of numbers. And by the time he got to the cross, even those 11 had fled. From any measure of success that we would have in terms of our understanding of the American dream, he didn't have it. He was unsuccessful. But when you define success as dependence upon God, dependence upon His Word, dependence upon His will, what seemingly was so unsuccessful was absolutely, eternally, infinitely successful. And that is, He achieved our salvation. See, success is based upon dependence upon God. And so Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the Father's will to the end, he went to the cross and took our sins in his body. He took the wrath of the Father against our sins. He took that form. He paid for them. And then he rose again in order to proclaim to us success. <laughs> success because I was dependent upon the Father and His plan. And He did that for who? He did that for His beloved. The reason His beloved can sleep is because it was the Lord who built the house. It was the Lord who watched over that city. It was the Lord who did the work. Jesus Christ did the work you could never do. He lived a perfect life and died on your behalf in order that you could have his righteousness. Success. So, as we take this bread and we take this cup, we're reminded that Jesus gave his body and he died for our sins. We are reminded he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and that he is, has introduced a new covenant into our lives. This is an absolute dependence upon what Jesus Christ did for us, and we're reminding ourselves once again, that's what he did for us. And so as we reflect back, maybe we reflect back upon this week, but perhaps you're reflecting back on your life, and you're a, a, a parent, an adult, who have adult children, and you were not, you never did craft your children according to the word of God, and you have lots of regrets. Well... Success, Jesus Christ died for you as well. Jesus Christ has died for all my failures and all of my crafting of my own children. And yes, I have a lot of regrets. There's a lot of things I wish I would have done differently. There's a lot more. They, they discovered what I, I valued so often. And yet I can know that I can come to the table and know, oh, you're forgiven. I will do the work. I'll continue to work. You're not hopeless. <laughs> They're not hopeless. I can do a great work in their lives. So as we come, we remind ourselves of anything that we have held on to that are lesser than his great good. We, 
him is the greatest good and we confess that and repent of that and we come back to this table and we renew our commitment to him, the one who never broke his commitment to us this past week. We renew our commitment to him. But if you are here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your, your ultimate dependence, you're not dependent on him, today's the day. Today's the day to say, I want Christ. I depend fully upon what he did for me on the cross. Do that now and then come down. Do that now. Confess that you have depended upon lesser things than him and depend upon him wholly and fully. And if you'll, you'll be repentant, yes, we want you to enjoy after you're baptized. <laughs> Unless you were already baptized. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to enjoy our dependence upon God again. Father, thank you. Oh, if, we, if we were dependent upon our good works, if we were dependent upon doing it right, there isn't a person here who could make it another hour. So, Father, we're grateful that what we couldn't do, Jesus Christ did for us. We're grateful, Father, that the, the pinnacle of uh, our pilgrimage goes right back to the cross. What Christ did on our behalf. Thank you that he died and rose again, that we might enjoy this meal again together as a family. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.